Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Well, if you've been coming here for a while, uh, you know that we just wrapped up our Faithful Through All Generations capital campaign. <clears throat> and uh, I want to say a, a word about that. Um, if you uh, either missed Commitment Sunday or uh, maybe have learned about it a little bit later than everyone, you can certainly still participate. There are commitment cards still in my office, and so if you just ask, contact the office if you want to hand in a commitment card. And if you're curious about how to continue giving, you've made a pledge and you, and you want to continue uh, the work, uh, and you're curious about how to continue giving, it's very simple. Simply, if you're, if you're dropping off a check, just simply put uh, Faithful Through All Generations in the, in the memo line or capital campaign, something like that, and the deacons will certainly uh, get that accounted for properly. And if you'd like envelopes, we can also provide envelopes for that as well. So just contact the church office. Now, during our Faithful Through All Generations preach, uh, capital campaign, we had a preaching series called Faithful Through All Generations. We've, so Tim preached about uh, money and giving and generosity for a number of weeks, and we've since moved off of that. Today, I'm going to continue uh, the series that we had started before the Faithful Through All Generations campaign series, and that was the Jesus Friend of Sinners preaching sinners. So, so today, we're going to talk about Jesus, a friend to sinners. <clears throat> now, I was thinking about what it means for Jesus to be a friend of sinners in relation to the holidays coming up. Here at this church, we say that we welcome sinners. Pastor Bailey regularly says that this church should be a place that is safe for sinners. It's a true statement, but to some degree, it's a safe one. We try very hard to be a welcoming church, and anyone that walks in the door, regardless of what he looks like, how he dresses, or how he talks, will be welcomed. That's our desire, right? But it fits so very nicely with all the other churches in the county, and so you start to think, well, what's going on here? What's up? <clears throat> For instance, any church near campus, near Indiana University, is in competition with each other, with all the rest of them, to see which church will be more welcoming to those who are openly and proudly self-proclaimed homosexuals. And the truth is, again, that we also would welcome open, proud sinners of any variety. But there's something different about our welcome than these other churches that I've referenced, right? Because once we get to know you, we are going to exhort you to live by faith and to turn away from your sin. And our elders believe that they have an, a responsibility as they serve communion, we're not having communion today, but as they serve communion, to make distinctions between those who are permitted to come to the Lord's table and take part in communion and those who are not. I, I bring this up every time, every quarter in my inquirer's class, I teach them, I teach the, the inquirer's class 
that it is in the elements, in baptism and the Lord's Supper, primarily where we see the authority of the elders brought to bear most clearly. The elders are called by God to judge between those who will be permitted to take communion and those who will not. And in fact, those who have taken communion and have been a part of this church, but who are found in some kind of sin and are unwilling to repent, and this often happens through the course of, the, of many years, but who are unwilling to repent and who undergo discipline are, if, if, if nothing changes, are excommunicated. Again, this is something different than many other churches in Monroe County. Most churches don't excommunicate anybody, but that actually does happen here. So it's almost as if we're saying that we're, it's safe to welcome, that this is a safe place to welcome sinners because we welcome everyone as long as we don't know who you are yet. Right? <clears throat> Things get trickier if you actually know the particular man or woman coming through the door. And this is why I think this is so related. Jesus' friend of sinners is related to our time together in the holiday seasons with our families. Because here we are planning to go be with family that we know very well. Right? These aren't people that you don't know. These are people that you know very well, you've known for many years, and you have all kinds of baggage with. <clears throat> the holidays are meant to be a time filled with much cheer and joy, but it's a well-known fact that many people resent this time of year and dread its coming. Why? Well, I think people dread it because they have to be around people they don't like and act like they like it. And they have to do things they don't like and pretend like they're having a good time. In other words, there is immense pressure on families and individuals to pretend that everything is fine and everyone is happy when everything is not fine and everyone is not happy. There's immense pressure to spend the next month and a half lying. And that's a surefire way to guarantee a little misery, right? Spending a whole season lying about how you're feeling and about how wonderful your family is is a recipe for depression. So what does this have to do with Jesus being a friend of sinners? Thanksgiving may be around the corner, but what do family gatherings have to do with this preaching series? Well, the two are related because all this talk about Jesus being a friend of sinners creates a problem for you as you head into this holiday season. It uncovers a paradox. If Jesus is such a friend to sinners, then why is it so painfully difficult to bring up anything related to Jesus or your Christian faith during this holiday time in your family gatherings? Why are there always fights and quarrels when you try to bring up anything related to Jesus and the holiness of God? If Jesus was such a friend to sinners, then why doesn't your family care to hear about him? After all, consider the merciful, compassionate things that Jesus did. Jesus regularly healed the sick and the infirm. He cleansed those who were outcast because of their infectious diseases. He regularly forgave notorious sinners for their sins. He cast demons out of the demon-possessed. 
He miraculously fed thousands of people by starting with small amounts of food and simply dividing it until he had enough. He spoke to the woman at the well, who was a known adulteress. He had dinner with Zacchaeus and all of his tax collector friends, who were known sinners. He had his feet washed with the hair of a sinful woman. And Jesus also told stories that demonstrated his compassion and love for the downtrodden. He told the story of the prodigal son. Who doesn't love the story of the prodigal son? He spoke of the care that a shepherd gives to one lost sheep. He told of the energy and the effort that a woman would spend to recover one lost coin. And he told of the joy she had when it was found. This is a, 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 an allegory for God's care for one lost sinner. He taught his disciples to forgive each other. He told the parable of the Good Samaritan and taught his followers to love their enemies and to do good to them. What's not to love? Jesus healed people. He comforted people. He fed people. He gave people a second chance. By his own testimony, Jesus came to give life, to bring light, to set the captives free, to make the lame walk, to give sight to the blind, and to heal the sick. Why is it ever difficult to bring Jesus up at a family event? John 3.16 is perhaps one of the most well-known verses in the Bible, and I believe it contains part of the answer. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Shall not perish, have eternal life? What's that all about? Jesus clarifies later in the same chapter, if you're confused. He says in verse 36 of John chapter 3, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. These two verses, you can take them together or separately if you like, they both essentially have the same truths packed in them, are either a wonder to you, or they're hateful. These verses cut a line right through all of humanity. These verses divide families and churches. You either live to declare these two verses on the rooftops, or you live to deny them. You cannot have it both ways. How many of you have, said something like, uh, have heard someone say something like this? I cannot believe a God who would cast people into hell. Have you ever heard something like that before? Many of us have. <clears throat> What's behind such a statement? What's behind such a statement is somebody who judges God for casting people into hell, for sentencing people to hell. I mentioned churches at the beginning of the service. I mentioned churches who welcome sinners. But the truth is, and I gave the example of, of sinners... Uh, self-proclaimed homosexual who's very proud of their homosexuality. And there are many sins I could pick on. I pick on that one because it's what's in the news nowadays. But um, there are many, many churches who welcome such a person. And so I said at the beginning that many people welcome sinners. But the truth is that very few churches welcome sinners. Most churches require you to deny that you're actually a sinner. 
And my point is that the churches that welcome the self-avowed sinner who's proud of his sin, the whole point of them welcoming such a person is that it's not actually sin, right? It's not something that they should be ashamed of. And so most churches require you to deny that you're actually a sinner or have ever done anything that you should be ashamed of. This is a requirement to get in the door. Most churches require you to deny that all mankind is under the wrath of God. In the inquirer's class, I teach regularly uh, that uh, a quote from Calvin that goes something like this. I'll paraphrase it. All of true wisdom in this world consists of two things. A love or a knowledge of yourself and a knowledge of God. You have to know who you are and you have to know who God is. Proverbs teaches that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. If I fear God, it means that I know who I am. In other words, that I'm sinful and have uh, an evil in my heart. And I know who God is. That he's perfectly holy and righteous. God is holy and he hates evil. And there is appointed unto man once to die and then to face the judgment of God. A man who fears God understands that every bit of wickedness out there in the world, in the news, is also right here in my own heart. And so he fears the judgment of God. John 3.16 divides right down between people who believe that God is to be feared and those who believe that God is impotent and who is, is not to be feared. A man who thinks God impotent thinks he doesn't actually exist. He thinks God will not judge him. Such a man believes that he is a pretty decent guy. There are many of these kinds of men around. Some of them have piercings and tattoos and hang out at skate parks. Other of them wear suits and spend their days in boardrooms. Some of them wear tweed and are professors at uh, college. And there's women in this category also. Some of them are moms and sisters. But what these people all have in common is the the assumption that they're safe. That they have nothing to fear, nothing to be concerned about. Now, I don't think that I knew very much about Mark Twain until I was in college. I didn't know that that Mark Twain um, despised the Christian religion and that he took every opportunity afforded to him to mock God and his church. It was a surprise to me. Uh, because, of course, many of his works are taught and read all throughout the country. Many of them are, are good and funny, right? Uh, but there's this, this streak in him um, that pervades much of his writing, and that is he, he takes every opportunity he, he can to mock God, the God of, of Scripture. And Mark Twain isn't unique about this, right? In our culture, we love to be entertained, and we love our comedians. For the most part, these comedians make a living out of mocking things that are sacred. And uh, occasionally, it's amazing, but occasionally, uh, it's, we find that these same comedians make fun and knock down idols. They actually do this sometimes. Sometimes a comedian will knock down an idol. It's kind of the way a blind squirrel will find a nut every now and then. 
It's actually true that comedians will knock down, or will knock down an idol from time to time. Uh, Tim has said in the past that comedians are paid to tell the truth and pastors are paid to lie. And it's, a, it's true, he's got a point. Um, the trouble with comedians, however, is that while they have been, just by the gifts that they've been given, they generally have a fair amount of discernment and know how to see things that most people don't see or see things in a, in a different light than the way most people see them. What they're not good at is, is uh, making a distinction between idols and the one true God, right? The, a comedian will make fun of everything and is a complete fool when it comes to making a distinction between a real idol and the one true God. And so we find that instead of the natural discernment that they have being used, put to good use, that instead comedians are some of the most stiff-necked people around. They're some of the hardest people to reach because nothing's serious to them. Right? There's a category for them in Scripture. I don't know, you, you've heard the term mocker, right? In, in Scripture, in Proverbs. Well, that's what a comedian is. He's a professional mocker. They are some of the most eager people to justify themselves in, in their own actions. <clears throat> and this is the problem that we have when we spend time, uh, spend the holidays with our families, right? Because there are some people in our families who are humble and who are willing to hear the Word of God, willing to hear truths that we have um, about God. And yet there are some who are stiff-necked and proud and want simply to justify their own actions. And so we're often caught between a rock and a hard place. We, we're eager to speak to them about the love and mercy of God to wretched sinners. But when we get home, we discover that no one there is actually willing to admit that they're a sinner. And that there aren't any sinners around. So this is the difficulty. How can we love holiness and purity on the one hand and be a friend to sinners on the other? How can we love holiness and purity on the one hand and admit that we don't truly love holiness and purity on the other hand because after all, we ourselves are stiff-necked and proud? Well, the, your best bet in this is to be accused is is to be accused of the same things that Jesus was accused of. Jesus was regularly accused of being a lawbreaker, and his defense, uh, and he defends himself in Matthew five regarding the law of God. Matthew five verse seventeen uh, says this: "Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill." For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes pretended to be holy. They were hypocrites. But this is a very important point here. Jesus didn't, say, don't be, didn't just say, don't be a hypocrite. He certainly said that, but he didn't just say that. 
You know, it's, it's very much in vogue today to denounce hypocrisy and then simply join in on the world's wickedness and, in fact, to try to beat them at their own game, to be more outlandish than, than everyone else is. That's not what Jesus did. He didn't say, don't be a hypocrite and watch this, I'm going to be just as bad as everybody else. He's, he raised the bar so much higher than the scribes and Pharisees had done that even they knew that it was completely hopeless. He said that God not only wants your actions, He wants your heart. And He wants your actions to flow out of the love you have for Him in your heart. Now, what's so interesting about this is that despite Jesus raising the bar on on requirements to holiness and calling His disciples to be holy, not only in, in deed, but in truth, despite this, He was later accused of all manner of licentiousness and wickedness by simply associating with sinners. And this is in Matthew 9, beginning with verse 9. It says, uh, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desired compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, if you're paying any attention you should be able to identify with where the, the tax collectors are coming, or the Pharisees, rather, are coming from. Jesus was hanging around sinners, right? People who apparently were wicked. And Scripture is clear that it's foolish to hang around evil men. In Proverbs 4, it says, Do not enter the path of, of the wicked, and do not proceed in the way of evil men. So if the scribes and Pharisees had read that verse, and surely they had, then they'll be thinking to themselves, what in the world is Jesus doing? Why would Jesus hang out with wicked men? Particularly if he was so committed to this high view of the holiness of God and the holiness that we as his disciples are called to. The answer, brothers and sisters, is that there is no conflict between the law of God and the grace of God. And this is what the scribes and the Pharisees did not understand. Jesus fulfilled the law for us. And that law is good, holy, and righteous. We are saved by Christ's work and by God's power and by God's power we are called to grow to love the law of God the more we live as Christians. It says in Titus 2, beginning with verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, 
zealous for good deeds. The grace of God has indeed appeared, bringing salvation and teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. When that grace of God is shed abroad in man's heart, he's not content to sit and enjoy it alone. He's eager to share. When Jesus quarreled with people, it wasn't with the the outcasts and the sinners, right? It was with those who said, say that they have no sin. Jesus quarreled with hypocrites and not with sinners. And the question for us today, and the question for us as we go into the, the Thanksgiving season and the Christmas season, is who are you going to quarrel with today? What will you be accused of? Now, as I end today, I want to leave us with some practical thoughts about approaching our families and our loved ones in this holiday season. The first is to ask yourself, are you a hypocrite? Right? Does your family resent you being at family gatherings because you're a hypocrite and you like to just hit people over the head with your, with your laws? Do, we, do you hide your sin and put on a show of your own holiness so that you can justify and make yourself look good in front of your family? Brothers and sisters, don't be a hypocrite. Confess your sins. Be humble as you go home with your family and spend time with your family. Jesus was perfectly holy and loved the law of God. He loved the law of God. And yet, somehow... Sinners were comfortable to be around him and spend time with him. So there's no conflict between you loving the law of God and the purity of the law of God and and being comfortable with humble sinners. Second, have the conversation. Bring up the conversation, right? Talk to your family about Jesus. One of the reasons I think perhaps we dread this time is because we think to ourselves, Oh man, I'm going to have to. I've been thinking about talking to so and so for so many years now, and I just haven't gotten up the gumption to do it. Have the conversation. Have faith for the conversation. Three, be patient with your family. God is patient with you, right? If you acknowledge that you're a sinner and that this place is a safe place for you because you're a dirty, rotten scoundrel then have patience with your brother or your mom or your sister this Christmas. Love them. Be patient with them. Be bold. It is true that this world, it's as if this world exists to deny the fact that the wrath of God abides on mankind. Be bold. Don't hesitate from proclaiming that truth. It's not, you're not, harming them when you, compl- when you declare that truth because it is appointed for man once to die and then to face the judgment. And so you are acting in kindness to remind people that, that we all one day will die and face the judgment. Five, ha- have faith for your words. You know, one of the reasons we hesitate and pull back is because it's so very pathetic when we finally get up the gumption to talk, right? Right? I mean, it's just the things we say, they all come out scrambled up and, 
it's as if, if, you know, one of the worst things to imagine is hearing a recording of yourself in such a situation. It's just terrible. It'll be all messed up, and you know it's going to be terrible. But my exhortation to you, brothers and sisters, is have faith for it. That God will use this small step of faith to bear fruit. And have faith for the years. You know, my, I, the example I think of and that I'm so very grateful for is the testimony of my mother and father with, in particular, my mom's family. My, my mother came out of a family that didn't know God and um, didn't make a claim to faith. Some of them did, I, I guess, to Roman Catholicism, but it was very empty, right? You've seen this kind of thing before. They went to Mass occasionally, but that was about it, right? And so, but my mom through the years of her life as a Christian, has just constantly been, over my whole life, has been just uh, testifying to Jesus, to her family. And there's many of them that still don't know the Lord, but there are a number that do, praise God. And I can, I can point to my, mom, my mother's faithfulness in that. And so, brothers and sisters, have faith that God will use the small things that you say Maybe not this season, maybe not next year even, but in the years to come. Now, also, forget about yourself, right? Another thing that we are afraid of is, or, you know, that's difficult about getting together with family is that there are just people you don't like. Now, are you going to be more holy than me and not admit that? <clears throat> right? There are just some people that are difficult to talk to. And so, brothers and sisters... Just forget about it, right? Don't be so proud and hard. Love your family. Talk to them. Talk to them, especially if it's difficult and there's all kinds of baggage. And, you know, talk to your family members. Love them. And finally, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you that the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news, right? I think we go into the holiday season sort of feeling a little defensive and we've got our, it's like we go in like this, right? We've got our dukes up. And my exhortation to you is, put your dukes down, right? It's, you don't need to be defensive. You might get punched, but that's okay. Be willing to be punched. But, and, and you might be tempted to feel defensive, particularly when you're telling people that the wrath of God abides on mankind. But remember, remember that this is good news that you're proclaiming to them. You're proclaiming that it is now time for the captives to be free. That God has sent His Son into the world to love the world and to save sinners. Right? This is good news. There's no reason for you to be defensive. There's no reason for you to put your dukes up. You can be cheerful and winsome and uh, and bold. All right? All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray that we would be joyful this holiday season and that we would take this opportunity, especially in Thanksgiving, to give glory to you and thanks to you for your work in us and through us and for the many good things you've poured into our lives. And I pray for the Christmas season also that you would fill our hearts with a desire to speak to our family and friends about you, and that we would do it with joy, Father, because indeed your Son has come and has released us 
from our bondage to sin and to hell and has made us free, Father. We praise your name and we glorify your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.